I'm your host, Rena Friedman-Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Thank grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mom is calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows your best. Better call daddy cause he's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees Eating, working, playing poker, those can all become addictions. Work and play can become addictions. And you can't just do one thing in life. You got to have balance. Today's guest, Eric Hatch, is the real deal. He is talking about overcoming addiction and fixing your character. He supervises a team of 50 realtors. He gives back and he has quite the daddy story. Eric Hatch, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Eric with a K. I love it. I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, it's a good day. It's a good day. I just listened to that episode with you and Matt Drink on. Wow. He got it all out. You did your research. I try. I listened to a couple episodes of your podcast. Thank you. It's super great. So yeah, way impressed. I'm a fan and a subscriber now. Ooh, podcasters love to hear that. Can I tell you a question that I get every single day as a podcaster? Of course. Do you make money doing this? I swear that is my most frequently asked question. What is your most frequently asked question? So I'm a realtor and the most common question I get is, is now a good time to buy? And the answer shockingly is always yes, because buying is better than renting, but there are certainly better times to buy. But I have not got the, do I make money as a podcaster? I get a lot of questions like, why is your face so weird? And where'd all your hair go? And why is your face so weird? (laughs) Maybe that's just my mirror talking to me. I don't know. Oh, my God. So I did see you make a video about one of your most commonly asked questions. And you said, if you're waiting to time the market, that's never a good idea. Yeah. Here's the foolish thing. Right now, people are like, oh, now is not a good time to buy. So I'm going to wait until interest rates drop. Well, when interest rates drop, prices skyrocket. It's a complete cause and effect. The ironic thing right now is that in most markets, interest rates have gone up and prices have gone up. And so imagine what happens now because the demand is still so high. So imagine what's going to happen when interest rates go down. Prices aren't just going to go up. They're going to catastrophically go up. I just sold a house and I seriously told my husband, I don't think we'll ever buy again. I can sense it. You told me you moved all around. Uh, Houston's not your final stop. Are you a psychic too? No, I'm just a predictor of people. Interesting. Tell me more about that. I just think human behavior is you've established a habit of moving And so for you to be like, well, now I'm good, 
Nah, you're probably not. My prediction is when someone says, I've been overweight my whole life, but now I lost this weight and I'm going to keep it off. Because I've been overweight my whole life and then I lose a bunch of weight. And I'm like, I'm going to keep it off this time. Turns out pizza is delicious. So most people are habitual. Their habits are deeply ingrained and our words and our intentions and our actual executions are different. So if you stay put, awesome. I mean, at least from our last conversation, it showed that you move a lot. Yeah, that is true. Although we stayed in Chicago for 10 years. So that was a good chunk of time. Okay. Okay. Well, call me up in 10 years and be like, I'm still in Houston, sucker. And I'll be like, I was wrong. Now, you tried to move a few times, although you are like born and bred North Dakota, right? God has smacked me back to this place a number of times. I love it here. Don't get me wrong. Like when people live in San Diego, how do you ever travel? How do you ever say, you know, I want to go to a place that's less pretty and less aesthetic and colder. Like home makes that conscious choice. You live in San Diego, you're living in like the perfect temperature in a great community all the time. You live in Fargo, North Dakota. Every time I travel, it's prettier and warmer. Like this is pretty marf. Tell me about growing up there. For people that haven't been to Fargo, North Dakota is the least visited state in the union. And when people do come, they don't come to Fargo. We're on the Minnesota border. So I'm like 20% Minnesotan and 80% North Dakotan, but 100% beefcake. So however that math adds up. North Dakota is a fascinating place. And growing up here, I lived in a small town outside of Fargo, you know, a town of 400 people. And I was proudly trailer trash. And so Fargo was the big city for me. And then I moved to Fargo and now it was super safe and the rest of the world has caught up to it. But it was the community, even as a a metro of about 150,000 people. Now it's about 250, but the metro when I grew up was 150,000 people. You could leave your door unlocked and your bike outside and it was pretty okay. The rest of the world has caught up to us now, or we've caught up to the rest of the world, I should say. And so now there's more, a little more crime, a little more of uh, that sort. But the odd thing was, and I don't know if people talk about this publicly, but I'm unafraid of just letting it all out there. Fargo was a really white place to grow up. And the amount of diversity that was in Fargo versus what is there now. My wife's been an educator for the last 17 years and works at a school where 40 to 50% of her students are not white. And so a massive amount of diversity is now finding us. But I grew up in a pretty isolated community. I, of course, was intentional in having eyes, not as a young kid. I just thought that that was how the rest of the world was. And I think that's a mistake so many people think is that our world is the world. And so I was integrated with that perspective of the way in which I view things is the way in which everybody viewed things. And and Fargo has grown and matured so much as a community with introducing everything from new cultures to new business opportunities to incredible educational places and spaces. Fargo in and of itself is one of the most special places on earth. But I wouldn't have said that 25 years ago. I wasn't proud of where I came from. I, in fact, wanted to run from this place and get the heck out of here. And sure enough, As God has continued to help me dig roots in here, I'm like, oh, now I see the magic in it. I see the perspective. And I think that most people in their hometowns think that the rest of the world offers something that their hometown doesn't. And it turned out my hometown of Fargo has offered more than I ever dreamt possible in terms of deep-seated relationships. And it's a hotbed for entrepreneurs. And this little town of Fargo has the average age of 31 years old. It's a young community. It's vibrant. It is one of the tech centers of the world. We are the drone capital of the world. Who would have thunk that? We have the second largest Microsoft campus in the country. We have amazing opportunities for folks and cost of living is lower. It's just hellaciously cool. So if you can bring up Harka, you're going to fit in just fine. You think they'll die there? <laughs> uh, that feels great. 
I think that the opportunities that I've had to grow businesses, we have a lake place an hour away in a, a city called Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. And I'm probably going to be a snowbird at some point in my life. And I'd love to have a mountain house as well, right? And so where am I going to die? Fargo is always home for me. But I also plan on living elsewhere, but I'm not giving up on Fargo. I'm glued to this place. I love it too much. It's so interesting, like when you grow up in a place and then you end up there as an adult and how that's a different experience. I actually went back to my hometown for a couple years married. It's a totally different experience. My wife and I are celebrating our 17-year anniversary this week. And so we had a date night last night. And we decided, because her mom, my mother-in-law, was watching the kids and we knew that they weren't in bed yet. You know, you're living a spicy life when you go out to dinner at six o'clock and you're like, well, I think we're done now. You know, what a wild ride. But we decided to drive down memory lane. And so we went to our old house and then the house that she grew up in, the house that I grew up in. And we did this like drive down memory lane and the look back on everything felt smaller. You know, we drove through our alley. I'm like, I remember this being way bigger. And you look at the house and you have fond memories, but the reality of looking back on things always drums up a whole bunch of emotions. My intent is I try to look forward if I'm ever going to really love life. And there's a, there's a book that I love. It's called The Gap and the Gain by Dan Sullivan. It was my favorite read of 2022. And it talks about how most of us look at our lives in the gap that's there. I told you I like looking forward, but I want to put an asterisk on that, right? When we look forward, we see how far I want to go, all the things I want to do, all the places I want to go. As you ask these questions about like Fargo, I'm not spending a ton of time thinking about how do I get out of here and what are the steps? And I think that so many of us look aspirationally and with longing hope, which is met with empty frustration because we haven't checked some boxes. And so when we look at the gap that's there, and it's a large chasm. For me, the gap was the retail store at the mall I worked at in 1998. Sold a lot of carpenter jeans and polar fleece, but those were good days. I was really just an excuse to be closer to Orange Julius. But nonetheless, the other side of that is the gain. And the gain is the look back on how far I've come. It's the appreciation of progression. I have the privilege of coaching a lot of people as business owners and realtors and that sort. And most people, when they're stuck, they're stuck with a perspective of failure as opposed to accomplishment. Obstacles and set up achievements. And when you can look at the gain that you've had, which is actually your look back in the rear view mirror to say, man, my, how far I've come. Look at the things that I've accomplished and overcome. That is fuel in an engine. That is fire in a belly. That gets people pumped up to say, man, I've progressed. And that one key word of progression is like one of my secrets in life. How do I try to keep a positive mindset? How do I try to lean into all these things? I try to study the progression. And yes, I'm still always aspirational of trying to figure out where to go and what to do next. Because I got to tell you, this summer I was supposed to plan my 25-year high school reunion. I was that guy, by the way. And most of you listening hate me because I was that guy that was the class president's and the uh, governor of this and the in charge of that and the student council, I, I was that guy and I still am hyper involved and vigilant. And those of you that were smoking behind the school hated me. But nonetheless, uh, and most entrepreneurs now and people who are out there doing great things were not the me's of the world. It's those that were the C students who were grinding away. Like uh, studies will show that some of the most powerful entrepreneurs of today and those that are changing the world are not the goody two shoes ones in high school like me. But nonetheless, I was supposed to plan my 25-year high school reunion and I didn't want to. So we're just going to do a 30-year. I didn't want to do a 25-year because 
I don't like just spending time talking about what was. I know we're going to get to daddy issues and all that fun stuff. I just never found great joy in talking about what was. I love talking about what could be and what would be and dreaming and scheming. And we have to look back in our rearview mirror and we have to study the game to keep our attitude right. But then we have to consistently be striving to move forward. And that's what I try to do with my life. I feel like what was can be tied to progression now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. What was is the progression piece. And I think that with the right perspective, it's not a stinking thinking. It's not looking back on the failures and shortcomings. You see, man, I started from the bottom. Now I'm here. I just became a very relevant rapper in that. And by the way, I felt good about that. We are totally like the same age. I'm coming up on 17 years of marriage and that 25 year reunion thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was on a webinar just before this and I, I gave like a five minute example of Al Bundy. And some of the Gen Zers in the room looked at me like they had no idea who I was. And so I had to say, well, it's the dad from Modern Family. And then they got there, at least a little bit. But I was talking about how, with the Al Bundy reference, that he would always talk about as a woman's shoe salesman, how he scored four touchdowns in a single high school football game. And that was his consistent claim to fame. And I was challenging to say, hey, we're only as good as our last four weeks. It's not about what we did 10, 20, 30 years ago that we rest on our laurels. Instead, it's what did you do the last four weeks? Because that's for me where I'm going to see who's going to be the most successful. Not who won yesterday, but who's going to win today. But nonetheless. Yeah, I saw another video you made too about saying that you work with your top performers as opposed to the people that are new through the door. I thought that that's an interesting approach as well. Yeah, there's a book called The Pumpkin Plan by Mike Michalowicz. And he's an entrepreneurial author and writes books for people who are in situations like mine. And he says that they studied these pumpkin farmers that were not growing the gourds the regular pumpkins that we put on our porch for Halloween, but instead those that had the blue ribbon winning county fair recognizing 1500 pound pumpkins that everybody would marvel at. And he has seven steps to grow those big pumpkins because those big pumpkins are what really get people attention. And step six of seven after studying these pumpkin farmers is give all your attention to your big pumpkins. And most of us, in the business world, we give all of our attention to the newborn baby and we give all our attention to the new kids on the block. And we just treat it as the Ron Popeil. Do you remember the Ron Popeil infomercials growing up? Yeah. Maybe you didn't get raised by TV like I did. So the infomercial growing up is he had this Ronco food dehydrator where at night you'd put in steak and chicken and the next morning you had this wonderful beef jerky. And he had a catchphrase on there that said, set it and forget it. And so many of us with our top people, we're treating it like the Ronco food dehydrator where we just set them up for success and then we forget about them and we think that I don't have any more value to give these people. And then we wonder why they leave and we wonder why they run is because our value proposition is in the culture and the community and the inclusion that we create, that they feel like they're a part of something special. And then it's the coaching and the consulting and the help that we can do to give them a customized ability to reach their goals. And you're going to have so much more success when you give your attention to your big pumpkins instead of the new kids on the block. And so that has been a, a theory and a philosophy for me that's worked out pretty well. I've heard you say too, that you pour into your people. What does that look like? Well, I, I don't do it well, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, what do you want that to look like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I want it to look like six-pack abs and I go and eat pizza, right? I think that in theory, pouring into someone is, it's not a one-size-fits-all journey. It's a customized journey. My sister, who's four years older than me, wore these things called multiples in the late 80s, early 90s. They came from a store called Benetton. And I see you nodding emphatically that you know Benetton as well. I you forgot know, that's what they were called. Yeah, yeah. These are like the mix and match 
sweatpants. These were like for stretch pants for stretch pants. And everything was labeled one size fits all and you were just supposed to stinge it. In fact, SNL mocked this with Chris Farley and Adam Sandler and, and people were coming to Gap and they'd say, well, you just have to stinge it. By the way, that's the second Gap reference, like 20 minutes. Unbelievable. What a day. And the idea is that these clothes that are super baggy, you just have to cinch and then you're going to be super in style. I got to tell you, I'm a double X guy. Like one size fits all is one size fits most, but it doesn't fit me. And somebody's going to be an extra small that's totally different than a double X. And, and all of a sudden, one size fits all actually doesn't fit many people very well. And so what does success and pouring into my people look like? It's not one size, or excuse me, it's not one size fits all. It's a customized, designed dress or suit for them. It means that I need to know their curves. This sounds inappropriate, but please <laughs> well, follow the analogy here. I need to know their ins and outs, their flaws, their insecurities, all these things that make them great, all these things that hold them back. And I need to be able to give them a plan that they want, and then I need to hold them accountable to what they want. I think that most businesses and most parents are holding people accountable to what I want or what the business wants. That's holding somebody accountable to a standard. And when you hold somebody accountable to a standard, you're like, hey, in the real estate world, we'll say, all right, you're supposed to sell 15 houses a year. If you want to be on my team, you have to sell 15 houses a year. So is that going to fire somebody up? I'm like, hey, Jeff, the standard is you got to sell 15 houses a year. What are you doing to meet this standard? Like, ugh. But if Jeff tells me, listen, I want to sell 25 houses a year because my family wants to move to another part of town because my kid has special needs and the school has this re these really great opportunities. If I show up and I have now this customized plan for Jeff and he tells me that he wants to sell 25 houses, that's all I'm going to talk about with him. It's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. And so showing up for your people and pouring into your people is a direct reflection of knowing exactly what they want and then just holding a mirror up and reminding them ever so gently all the time. Do you share your biggest screw-ups with them? Do you get vulnerable with them in order for them to share their wants with you? Yeah, 100%. I love vulnerability. Here's my first humble brag of the day is uh, I did a TED Talk a few years ago, and it's had hundreds of views. So watch out, world. I'm a rampage. My wife and I battled infertility for a long time and countless miscarriages and so much pain. And then we finally were able to welcome our daughter Finley into the world almost nine years ago. And my world forever changed and I got to become a dad. And my wife and I are very different. My wife is super introverted. I'm loud and obnoxious, right? So we're this perfect balance between one another. I remember she wanted to be so quiet about her pain and I wanted to be loud about pain. And the greatest example I can share is this, is my mom who passed away when I was 21, she fought cancer for five years. And when she got diagnosed with cancer and was losing all her hair to chemotherapy, she got the wig, she got the hat. And for about two days, she wore that. And then she's like, ah, screw this. The world can see that I'm going through some stuff. I don't care. And so she just owned being bald and beautiful. She was okay showing the world that stuff. And then fast forward to two weeks before she died, it was one of those late May days in North Dakota where the sun is shining at 70 degrees for the first time. And so everybody puts on their shorts and their tank tops and they do whatever they can to get a little bit of that sunshine that we've been craving so much. And so my pastor told this story at my mom's funeral. He said, I saw Betty at the grocery store and she was there in her shorts and her tank top grinning from ear to ear. And Betty Hatch was a big lady. Us hatches aren't made as petite. And so she's there smiling and hugging people and she's 
bald and wearing pulling out of her tank top and her shorts and then down by her ankle was her urine bag swinging back and forth because she had had so many surgeries that she literally had to have all of her bowels go into these bags and imagine that confidence imagine that worldview of saying like hey i'm gonna let my vulnerability show because that's actually what makes me strong instead of acting like your shit doesn't stink Oh my God, my dad loves that line. It is such an obscure idea that people are acting like their shit doesn't sink and everybody else just smells stinky shit. I have a buddy, Greg, who says, when you talk about your successes, it breeds competition. When you talk about your brokenness and your vulnerabilities, it breeds collaboration and connection and empathy. And so to your aforementioned question, with my team, am I talking about everything I've done wrong? No, I I try to leave it like, hey guys, here's all my crap. And my TED Talk talked about how we're to declare our hot mess and we're to show this world our brokenness instead of hiding and being afraid. Our strength comes from showing this. And my mom was the perfect person that showed me and was never shy to hide all the stuff that was wrong. It It was the greatest inspiration I've had. God bless her. I want to be more like that. I am not that. I think the more people that you talk to that are that, it helps. (laughs) It's contagious. We'll go back to the high school reunion. Like imagine you go to your high school reunion and that person shows up ready to brag, ready to talk about how everything is going right. We all want to avoid that person like a bike. That's why people don't want to go to a high school reunion is because it's a dick measuring contest. Like, oh, I have no desire whatsoever to be surrounded by people that talk about how great they are. I want to be in a community where people talk about how broken they are. Like, I'm baptized and raised in the church. I was in the ministry for about a decade. I absolutely love the church. And I also understand how gross it is in some accord because the church is meant to be a place for broken people to come. But in its execution at so many places, it is a country club where nobody talks about what's actually wrong. I tell you, this is not a knock on a single church. It's just the church in general is that we as a society are so afraid of showing our brokenness. And the church is the manifestation of that. Imagine going to the hospital and you have a broken leg, but you show up and you're like, not good. And everybody sees you limp and everybody knows that you have this major pain, but you're like, no, I'm good. I don't need any help. Like this world belongs to people that will proclaim their brokenness. Our political scene as another example, and I hate politics. Me too. Just like a bad taste in my mouth, but it's chest thumping, ego driven. I have it all figured out. I've never messed up in my life. Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, I don't care who it is. There's no ownership of crack. And my wife and I, as we were going to bed, I'd love to say she's the only one that enjoys this show, but there's this trashy show on TV called Love Island. You watch Love Island? No, but I love her already. Absolute garbage. And I watch it like a soap opera every night. We go to bed and we turn on an episode and I'm fascinated by it. And it's these 23-year-olds who are all trying to get with each other and this dating. And this guy messed up on the show. His name's Leo. He messed up and flirted with a girl when he was kind of in a relationship with another one. And so the girl that he was with confronted him. And this guy owned his entire mistake. He literally was like, you're right. I messed up. I'm so sorry. I did this. It was terrible. And I sat there. I'm like, that for me is like, that's what a real man does. This society talks about real men. And maybe this is my transition here. I don't know if it's my transition, but this society talks about real men as you picture the Marlboro man and the guy that never cries and his emotionless and his robotic in nature in a sense. I think that the difference between a real man and a good man, and I'm going to put those as parallels, is you know a real man owns his mistakes. If you're going to be accountable, 
it means that you have to admit your wrongs and you have to be able to say, hey, I can do better. And so you, you can't just avoid and live this falsified image of, I have it all figured out. My world is all perfect, yada, yada, yada. I've never made a mistake. I want to be surrounded at church and my family and well, Washington Love Island by people who are like, hey, I screwed up. I am not a 10 out of 10. I'm broken and I need some healing. And again, my example was my mom in that, right? I had the best example of how to own your ship instead of acting like it doesn't stink. When do you feel like you became a man? And do you feel like that had to happen too early? Uh, puberty? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, like responsibility-wise, because you were orphaned. I mean, even before that, though, you said your dad wasn't around. Yeah, you know, my parents divorced when I was two, and my dad was never in the picture. I would see him every three years or so. And so it was this real inconsistent relationship. He only lived a couple hours away for most of my life. But I was raised by a flock of women. Literally, it was my mom, my sister, my aunt who had four kids, three were female, and then I wasn't close with the male. And so I remember, this is, this is one of my favorite stories and my sister hates when I tell it, is she was probably 12 and I was eight. And we went out after church on a Sunday morning to lunch at an Italian restaurant. And my sister was given a gift from my aunt of a purse. And I'm this eight-year-old being like, why is Tanya giving a gift and I'm not? What is this? What is this? So my mom leans over and she said, the purse is full of tampons. We're celebrating your sister's first period. Like, oh, say what? You know, like, uh, and so my world was surrounded by estrogen. 100% estrogen, estrogen, estrogen. I So when you say, when did I become a man? I didn't even know what a man looked like. Like I knew mm. that they had a penis and not a vagina. Like, I was able to figure that part out. But I, I didn't correlate what a man actually looked like because I had no male role models. None. My dad was the exact opposite of who I wanted to be. So I didn't want to be a real man. This sounds weird, but like I didn't want to be a woman, right? But I wanted to have the characteristics of empathy and of kindness and of understanding and of diligent hard work and of vulnerability and of no excuses. And I only saw that model in women. I didn't see that modeled in men. And so I have no idea what I became a man. I just knew that I was orphaned at 21 and I all of a sudden had everything from life insurance policies to figure out to a house that I owned to schooling I had to get through but I knew what hard work was. I knew what sacrifice was. I knew what family investment was. And so if that's what being a man was, I learned that really early. I was a man super early, but in terms of viewing this world through estrogen, I had that figured out with viewing through testosterone. I don't know. I think I'm still trying to figure it out. Oh my God, everyone is, wow. Talk to me about the insurance policies. And I did hear you talk about you had a gambling chapter like that's also interesting. What was your game that you played? Were you poker or? Yeah. So I'm 43 years old and I get run to that cusp of like, I'm like half millennial and half Gen Xer. Yeah, so me too. I got to see like the birth of a lot of things. And yep. when I was 21 years old, as I said, my mom died and I grew up with one foot in the welfare bucket, probably trailer trash. And then when I was nine years old or so, my dad was working in California. He was a roofer. He got hit with a wrecking ball and knocked off a third story roof and broke his back and was unable to work for the rest of his adult career. And we were able to get eight years of unpaid child support at that time. And child support for two kids. And my mom was a secretary. So unbelievably smart, but didn't have necessarily the right education because that was so necessary back in the 80s and 90s to climb that corporate ladder is you had to have the degrees and that's sort of cheating. And so 
we got eight years of unpaid child support at $300 a month. And so that's 2,400 bucks a year. But over the span of eight years, that added up to being quite a big chunk of change. And we were able to eliminate some debt. And then we put $5,000 down, which is 10% on a $51,000 townhouse. And my family moved into a townhouse. So all of that to be said, I went from being trailer trash to living in a dumpy apartment to then we had this townhouse. And all of that time, my mom was working three jobs just so I didn't have to wear ALS sheets. She was 70 hours a week and never missed a sporting event or anything else because she was super mom. And my dad just wasn't around. And so all of a sudden, as she passed away, even though she didn't have any savings, she was smart enough to say, I have to set my kids up for a better chance at things than what I went through. And so she would tuck away into a little life insurance policy and it was probably worth 40 grand or so when she died, which is a ton of money in 2001, at least for my sister and me. So she got half, I got half. And then we each had half of this $50,000 townhouse that the bank owned most of. But I was able to take enough money to pay off my student loan debt, to pay off my car, to put $2,000 into an IRA. And then I kept about $4,000 for myself. And I was back to even. So I was given a clean slate of debt that I had accrued in three years of being an adult. I was given a clean slate, which is an incredible gift that my mom did. And then I had about four grand in the bank. I took half of that and I used it to be an irresponsible 21-year-old. I bought a bunch of clothes and I drank a ton, right? And I lived that life. But this was also during the internet poker boom in which it just started to become a thing. And so there were these websites that would allow you with blackjack to sit down. And if you deposited $50 of cash, they would give you $50 of free money to play with. And you just had to gamble a certain amount and then once you did, you could cash up. So I did this over and over and over and over and over again. I just found all the sites that allowed me to get free money. And so I turned that $2,000 of gambling money into like five or six or $7,000. And then I started playing poker online. And I have a pretty good ability to read people. Poker is not gambling. Poker is a skill game in which you're reading situations and you're gauging and you're going to hit losses sometimes. But if you play the grind slow and steady, you're going to win the race. Well, I did that. And all of a sudden, in 2002, I graduate from college. I get a job in the ministry. Understand that I have a weird, hot mess of all sorts of things. So I get a job in the ministry and uh, I'm working at the church full time. Like I went from tending bar and gambling to now letting go of tending bar, which is paying me more than anything else, to full-time ministry. I stopped gambling for a while, but I'm like, oh, I made $24,000 a year. I just made $40,000 last year gambling. Like just slow and steady going through it. And so I started gambling again. And it was just my own money. And it was this quiet little secret. I say publicly, this was the affair I was having with my wife, right? Because I was having this affair with money. And people who are addicts, people who are in deep, they usually operate on a rule of 10%. Like, yeah, I lost a hundred bucks and then I lost a thousand. I gambled once last month. Now I gambled 10 times last month. And so you get portions of the truth and it makes you feel like you're not hiding anymore. When I was 100% hiding my life. And this just compounded and transcended where I went from playing the skill game to playing the rush and playing my addiction. And it started to become a bigger and bigger issue. And so all of a sudden in 2008, when I recognized the oh crap that I had created, I came clean to my wife. And here I am making $28,000 a year as a college educated full-time minister. And I have now racked up from the free clean slate that my mom had given me at the age of 21. Seven years later, I'm $70,000 in credit card debt. Also, I took out a second mortgage on our house but I had my wife's back and I'm making $28,000 a year. My wife is an elementary school teacher making $31,000 a year. She was the breadwinner in the family. And I had more debt than I did dollars to my name coming in. And so went to credit counseling, went to marriage counseling, went to individual counseling, 
And real estate was the vehicle that got me out of this, oh crap mess. I've been clean out gambling now on the tables for 15 years. I'm an entrepreneur, so I still gamble all the time in terms of yeah. businesses and people's lives and everything else. But it's a controlled environment where I'm reading the things that have served me pretty well. I understand I'm still flexing those same muscles, but I'm not doing so in a destructive, play the rush sort of way anymore. And so- if it wasn't for this gambling lesson that I learned of having to sober up, like I was just going so fast. Do you know you can't take more meth to get rid of your meth problem? I've never done meth. I've never done any drug. Like you can't take more meth to get rid of your meth problem. But when gambling, you're like, if I just play a little bit more, if I just gamble a little bit more, I can rid myself of that problem that I just found myself in. And turns out I come from a line of addicts. My sister has battled gambling issues as well. My dad was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And so like, it's in my blood a little bit. It's one of my many daddy issues, but turns out it's in my blood. And I'm trying to make sure that my kids develop the habits in their life so that they don't have the fall from grace like I was given. How did your wife talk that out? Oh, there's a lot of tears. She came home. I remember this day like it was yesterday. It was 15 years ago. and, And she came home and I was sobbing, just absolutely wrecked. She's like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? She starts consoling me and she's holding me. And I just said, I messed up. I messed up. I'm so sorry. I messed up. And she's like, well, how did you mess up? And I said, well, I know I've told you I've been gambling a little, but I've been gambling a lot. And her grip releases just a little bit. And then as I continue to tell her the hole that we're in now, she's sobbing. And so my guilt and my shame is so much greater. And she could have and probably should have left me because I screwed up everything. And I took the trust that she gave me and I abandoned it. And she didn't. She called her mom and then she called her dad and said, dad, can you come over? Her parents are divorced. And her dad at that time was a lawyer and most recently a judge is now since retired. So I want you to imagine a lawyer slash a judge slash your father-in-law. And I grew up with no male role models whatsoever and really have an aversion to men in general. Walk in. You're in for it. (laughs) And her father, Tom, is a really good man. And- He consoled Emily, my wife, and then said to her, listen, it's not a matter of if Eric is going to gamble again. It's a matter of when Eric is going to gamble again. There's a hefty level of truth to that. But it's like he double dared me, you know? He double dared me to be like, hey, I made this statement. Can you actually be this man? Can you be different than the man that I'm predicting you to be? And similar to my father, I got a lot of assholes to prove wrong. And my father-in-law is not an asshole, but I wanted to prove him wrong by that statement. And so my wife was completely wrecked. This is a huge lesson that I learned from that time. It was about December. I came clean in June of 2008. It was about December of 2008. And I had said the old line that I had always said, my wife said, hey, I'm going to bed as an elementary school teacher. She's going to bed at 9.30 or 10. And I'd say, I'm going to stay up and work. And then when she would go to bed, I would then go to my laptop and I would gamble. And gambling, gambled to two or three in the morning. And so my affair was happening when she would go to bed. And at six months later, she said, I'm going to bed. I said, I'm going to stay up and work, which I legit had to do. And she said, Eric, you're not going to gamble, are you? And I was like, no, I'm not going to gamble. My reaction was visceral and it was angry and it was frustrated. And I'm like, Emily, I haven't gambled for six months. And she goes, yeah, I mean, you lied to me for six years. It was like, oh, I did damage that I didn't understand the ripples from and of. To this day now, I've been clean of it for 15 years, but I still have to bring myself to this point of understanding that I unintentionally hurt the person that I love the most in this world and that I don't get to choose her emotions in this. I don't get to choose her level of trust. I can only be consistent on trying to be the man 
that I'm called to be. And by God's grace, she continues to give me second chances and third chances, but she maybe has forgiven, but she has not forgotten, and nor should she. Forgiveness and forgetfulness are two very different things, and they are mutually exclusive from one another. I am grateful to have that forgiveness, but she will never forget, nor should she. Did she forgive you before you forgave your dad? Yes. My wife will be quick to say that I am stronger at forgiveness than she is. It's more of a flexed muscle that I've had in my life from loss to rejection to all these sorts of things. I am quicker to forgive, but I didn't find forgiveness for my father until I was probably 30. It was probably 2010, so it was like two years after that. But what's amazing is when you're given a gift of forgiveness from somebody, it's got pay it forward kind of thing. I remember watching the movie. Have you seen the movie Pay It Forward? I know the concepts, but I'm not sure if I saw the movie. 2000s. Uh, this was the first movie I saw after my mom died in 2001. And I'm on a bus trip with kids driving from Fargo, North Dakota to the middle of Colorado to go on an adventure trip. And I'm on the bus and we're watching this movie Pay It Forward. I am sobbing like a schoolgirl, like just completely wrecked and broken because this concept of Pay It Forward gave me a vision for my life, gave me clarity. And I'm like, my mom's life was not in vain. She gifted me all these things. And it's my job to pay it forward. And so fast forward to when my wife forgave me for my sins and gambling, I felt again, that surge to be like, I got to pay this forward. I never put this together before, but it was one of the greatest gifts my wife ever gave me that I was able to give myself and my father before he passed away in 2011. Wow. Yeah. That is honestly insanely powerful. And it's true. It is so contagious when somebody does something for you just completely out of the goodness of their heart that you want to do that. I received a postcard from somebody's podcast who I was on and a coffee mug. And I was like, that is freaking genius. And so what did I do? I went and sent somebody a card and then sent somebody a book. It wasn't even to him. It was somebody else that I had been meaning to do that to. But getting that random gift from somebody whose podcast I was on, Ryan Akori, I'm probably saying his last name wrong, but that supercharged me to want to literally get in my car that day and get somebody else. And you did it on like a, a much grander scale, but it is a little tiny ripple. It can make a huge ripple. Yeah. There's always the concept of trying to pay somebody back, but paying it forward is the most contagious thing that's out there. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. We should differentiate there. Do you want to talk a little bit about the difference? Paying it back means somebody is owed a debt and I'll eventually be caught up. I owed a debt to my wife and I'm consistently trying to catch up for the brokenness that I've done. Like that for me is an intrinsic, I love this person so much, I'm trying to continue to serve them. But it's not because I love her relentlessly. It's because like, I don't think I owe her anymore. I think that some people out there have narratives of I'm loyal to this person because they once sacrificed for me or they once took a chance on me. And so we're constantly keeping like a meter in our heads being like, I'm going to try to pay this person back. I'm not paying my wife back. I'm completely and madly in love with her. And I want to do everything in my power to serve her. But one of the greatest things that I can do is to take the gifts that she's given me and share that with the world. How will this world know the powerful women that I've had in my life is not if I just pay those women back, but instead of I pay it forward, if I take the love my wife has given me and the example and the love that my mom gave me and the investment that my aunt has given me and the care that my sister read, I take all these things that have been gifts to me. Paying it back is the end of the story, but paying it forward is the start of the dominance. To me, it sounds like you've truthfully figured out why you're here. You know, 
Here's humble brag as I wrote a book in 2019. I want to gift this to your audience, by the way. Okay, so I'll, I'll give instructions just a moment. But I wrote a book called Play for the Person Next to You in 2019. It's a servant leadership guide. And tied in that is the intro that I have. And I talk about how I was sitting with a mentor and he was asking me about what I want my life to be like, you know, kind of that deep seated question. And I said to Mark, I'm like, I think I'd love to have this unbelievable life where I write this autobiography and it says Eric climbed Kilimanjaro and knows how to spell Kilimanjaro and ran all these things of like Brady Docious, I'm great. And, and he knows me pretty well. He's like, Hatch, I don't know if that's true to you. I'm like, yeah, I know, but I'm, I think it's just what I'm supposed to say. And he says, instead of having your own incredible autobiography, wouldn't it be better to be a chapter in everybody else's books? And I'm like, oh, that's it. Like, that's why I breathe this. I want to be a important in this world. My faith tells me in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in his image to do good works that are already set aside for us to do. We are literally designed by God to serve other people. If we feel out of alignment or out of purpose, or we are, are lost souls at sea, the greatest way to find reprieve in this is by serving other people. Most of us, when times are tough, we move into self-preservation mode. It's how do I take care of me? What do I do? What's best for me? But when we start to serve other people, we radically fall in line with how we're designed. We find purpose from perspective. We find gain from serving. By giving, we get. I've always felt my best in life when I've given the most. Not when I hoarded the most, but when I'm given the most. And so it's this intrinsic, like, all right, here we go. If we're going to find great joy and satisfaction and meaning in life, I found it from giving it away and not by keeping it. Okay. Speaking of giving, you have done some significant giving and you've been able to give a lot of charity and raise a lot of funds for some children locally and abroad. Can you talk a little bit about some of your giving? So I am really passionate about making sure that my life is more than just for me. It's, it's for the world. And when I moved from ministry into real estate full-time, ministry is like you're designed to give. You're supposed to do all this. And then I became a businessman and I was making way more and I had more resources than I ever thought possible. And it felt empty to be self-serving for me. And I wanted to make sure that I had a voice, not only for myself, but to try to invite other people along because I knew I couldn't be the only weirdo out there who wanted to have a life that was more than just giddy and more than just keeping and hoarding. And so when I worked at the church, I started a nonprofit called Homeless and Hungry, and we had kids walk empathetically for 30 hours in the shoes of a homeless person. So they passed and for 30 hours, they slept in a cardboard box in October in North Dakota, which is plenty cold. And we raised about a million bucks through the time of doing that. Then a few years ago, my friend Nick and I, Nick lives in Portland, Oregon. He's a realtor similar to me, but had a heart to serve the world. And we wanted our businesses to mean more. And so we started a movement called Sell a Home, Save a Child that invites realtors and mortgage lenders and title companies to give a portion of the money that they make to help save kids and to fight the grossness that's out there in the world, that our businesses mean more than just more for us. It's more for the world and more to serve. And so through that, we raised about 3 million bucks by inviting other people to give. And then there's a nonprofit locally called Unseen, and they fight human trafficking and its root causes. And so human trafficking has been on the radar of some folks lately because of Sound of Freedom and because of other things. And then please, if you're ever to give to a charitable organization, do your research, make sure you understand how far your dollars go and the people that are behind it, because there's some not good people labeling themselves as good people out there. And Unseen is doing the hard work and they're fighting to save kids from all over the world. And here's my cause for pause is, I just imagine my, and it wrecks me every time, but I imagine my eight-year-old daughter getting taken and then being sold time in and time out each day and horrific people coming and raping her over and over. And 
People say, well, what do I do about that? What's my actual call to action? And I'm just inviting people to give to Unseen. And I did an event last year. And at this one event over the course of a couple of hours, we raised $1.15 million just to help fight human trafficking and through causes. And we're continuing to be a voice for the voiceless and to try to show people a path because hearing the story is one thing, but actually taking action is another. This world belongs to action takers. Not people that have the heart for it, but people that have the hands and feet for it. I heard you talk about you were giving money to an organization and then you found out it wasn't a good one. How can you research these organizations to make sure you're giving your money to what they say it is? Yeah, there's no 100% bulletproof thing that's out there. Uh, Darkness exists around every corner, but so does light. And so when you do your research, talk to some vetted sources, talk to people that have been hands and feet and boots on the ground that can speak in a firsthand kind of experience. Most of us have the ability to give. If you can't give your treasure, you have your talents and your time to give. If you can't give uh, your time and your talent, maybe you have your treasure to give. And we need all of those. But I encourage people to do a little research, ask some questions, and then to give ferociously. Yeah. You had a story about somebody who, by the time they were 30, they wanted to give 100K. Can you talk about that story? Absolutely. I have a buddy. His name is Kyle Reedstrom. And he uh, was on my real estate team for a number of years. And we opened a business together. And he's just a fantastic guy. Kyle has said when he was 26 years old, he's like, Apps, when I'm 30, I want to donate 100,000 bucks. Well, that's awesome. What a big life you have to have to even understand that perspective. But I said, hey, how about we not just run a marathon the first time you go jogging? Let's grow into it. And so we made a plan for him when he was 27 to donate 10 grand, 28 to donate 30, 29 to donate 60. And then when he was 30, he donated 100. So there was actually $200,000 instead of 100. And so he, between his own giving and empowering other people to give, did just that. And he ran charity poker games. I didn't take part that don't touch poker anymore. But he did all of these things to invite other people to give. And I got to say this, there are so many of us out there that have a voice and influence. Are we using it to invite and to show other people how to do good? Kyle has gone on and he's passionate about the same nonprofit on scene that I am. And he made a Facebook post like a week ago and he said, I know a lot of you have seen the movie Sound of Freedom. If you're looking for a way to actually get involved and to make a difference, please let me know and I'll inter- make an introduction to you. And he shared with me yesterday, he said about a dozen people reach out who was like, hey, thank you for posting that because I want to figure out what to do and I didn't know where to go. Most people don't even know. I think there's so much goodness in the world, but our job is to be an extension cord of the goodness, to take the fire that people have and connect them with the place that they actually need. We don't have any power ourselves, but we get to be an extension cord. What a cool gift that is. And so for those of you with podcasts and those of you with businesses and those of you with any kind of influence, are you using your voice to point to the right things? That's such a good point. Yes. I'm definitely trying to do that. You know, I want to go back to your message of serving because I wanted to share my dad's wisdom with the world, right? Like that was kind of my message of creating this platform. But my dad recently, like a couple weeks ago, said to me that it's really about the wisdom that the guests are giving to us. And that is upping his wisdom rating. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like that a lot to facilitate hiring all thinkers and people who are looking at the world like, I suppose you have a front row seat at becoming the most developed, educated, connected, because you're showing up, yes, as a host, but you're the student, right? You're the facilitator of. Exactly. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? 
I would love to know what is the biggest mistake he made as a father and what has he done to since try to rectify that? Because I think that most of our world swings like a pendulum. You know, on one side is we have an extreme action and then we tend to overcompensate on the other side before we land somewhere in the middle. As an example, I'll use my gambling, right? When my gambling mistake was so far on one side, when I came clean, then it was like, I'm in Gamblers Anonymous and I'm in counseling and I'm in all these other things. Now I found the rhythm and the in-between, right? The rebound is one thing, but that rhythm on the in-between of the learned lessons. So I know and I understand that I have regular financial conversations with my wife and I have new accountability that's there in my world. And I have all these things that are consistently holding me to a high standard. And so I'd love to know from your dad, what is something that he has maybe messed up on? How did he recover? And what is his new rhythm because of it? Mm, I'm excited to hear what he has to say. I was actually trying to think of what I think he would say. I can't. So that will be interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let people know how they can type leadership into your DMs and connect with you and get your book and watch your TED Talk and all the good stuff. Uh, So I'm Eric with a K. That always throws people off a little bit, but a real Eric Hatch on Instagram. Give me a follow if you'd be so kind. I post a bunch of stuff there, everything from leadership to business to family to self-deprecation, you name it. It is a potpourri and a vast array of the hues of my life. But if you follow me, real Eric Hatch, that's Eric with a K, simply type one word into my DMs. Just type the word leadership. That's it. And we'll get instructions on how to get my book for free. We just ask you to pay shipping and handling, but we'll send you a copy of my book and then you can be engaged with some stuff that I'm putting out there. That's where you can find me. That's where you can follow me and feel like I'm such a trendsetter now being on the Instagrams. I am honored to know you. Thank you. It is a pleasure. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. All right, Eric Hatch. Well, this was very good for your show, I'll tell you that. And it gives you a very good perspective of a few things. And of course, he asked me then the same thing. Are there things that I've had to overcome where I've gone wrong, where sometimes you have to correct your own character, nobody's going to correct it for you. You have to do it yourself. And in 2008, I also, for a year or two before that, making plenty of money in the market, thinking that you're invincible boy, oh boy, back to being a human again. And 2008, I tried to ride out that storm and things were out of my control. The brokerage house sells you out, even though it was very close where I made it till Monday, the market recovered 1,100 points. I wouldn't have lost anything uh, to speak of. So sometimes things are beyond your control and you have to have staying power. And the same thing can happen where he mentions to you that using different strategies. He learned to play poker really well. And then all of a sudden, you're lining up wins. Then all of a sudden, you can get excessive. You can start doing it too much. You don't think uh, straight. This is why at a lot of the casinos, they like to send you the women in your lap, send you the drinks. Because after you're playing and you're playing and playing and you're winning, sometimes your bets get bigger. But eventually, the odds catch up with you. And uh, no matter how good of a poker player you are or blackjack player or whatever the game might be, can take a physical and mental strain on you. And then all of a sudden, you're on the losing end of the game instead of taking little wins. That lesson where I've been very successful at making money in the market again and have recouped any losses that I had, plus times two, three, four times 
the winnings again, but using that slow and steady and good strategies and taking the emotion out of the game and thinking that let's not be over leveraged. Let's make sure that we work within our means and use our smarts to win rather than take a chance that if something goes wrong or goes out of our control, where you increase the odds of losing and losing isn't fun. What's also comes out that I found to be a very good quote is that, you know, when you're playing sports, sometimes you're only as good as your last performance. He says that even in business and in life, gives a darn what you did five or 10 years ago. It's what have you done for me lately? And it's really keeping a track record of maybe even looking back only four weeks, okay? That going to a reunion or going to a meeting uh, amongst your peers, <laughs> somebody keeps uh, trying to tell you how wonderful they are and what, what they've done this and they've accomplished that and they've done this, where he, he calls it a pissing contest. Who gives a darn how far you can piss? It's really learning how to come up with a concept of growth and being to be adaptable to the environment as time goes on and always being forward-looking, believe it or not, you'll get a lot further in life, being willing to grow and learn and even in categories that you didn't even think you needed to study. But how do you gain all that knowledge is if you don't have the experience, is networking with people that do have experience in that area and seeing if you can create a team of people and a network of people and going over with people that have overcome things will go a lot further. When everything is just handed to you and when everything is just so easy, you take it for granted and guess what happens? You're not as sharp as those that are hungrier and those that have had to work harder for it. So it's nice to be motivated. But the fact is, is that you have to understand that there's those that are able to play the game of life without the emotion of it and take winning in stride as they take losing in stride. Those that can keep the emotion out of winning and losing and always looking to just learn and grow and move forwards, they'll end up with a lot more wins than losses. Also, alongside that, you're taking into account the winning and the losing. And when people are doing the pissing contest, they're not really sharing the losing. No, they're just telling you how wonderful they are. And why do they do that? The reason why they do that is because they're giving their own ego a lift because they have issues with their own confidence. And by doing that bragging thing, as they think that that, and look how many times also that people look down at other people to also make themselves feel better, and that they think that that makes them on a higher trajectory, okay? Taking advantage of others thinks that's uplifting them, and really all it does is make them look even worse, okay? It's better to be in the light than to be in the darkness, and those people that don't need other people to tell them if they're doing good or doing bad, let your own conscience be your guide is also that inner voice that you get from upstairs. And it can direct you with a little humility and understanding that uh, you're getting gifts from God. And that's the final judge. That's the guidance that we need. And I think part of the networking is his work of trying to see if humankind can actually overcome bad choices and continue to choose good choices. And it's his experiment, and it happens every day. And if we follow our conscience and we don't get so cocky 
thinking that when we're winning, that that's the only thing that's going to happen in your life, you find out that it's a balance. And it's the same thing about work and family life is that you have to try to figure out a balance. You know, if you want to have a nice profession, as we've talked before, it's really great and wonderful. But if you don't have a family lifestyle, what happens when you get older and you're ready to retire and you have no friends and you have no family? We're going to then go to uh, have a pissing contest and go to a convention of whether it's doctors or pharmacists convention and talk about all the wonderful accomplishments that we've had. Guess, guess what? I told you the story about the trophies. When I was younger, I'd rather have trophies than taking the money prize, if you remember. Okay. And what are those trophies? worth today. Who cares about winning 26 trophies? Okay. I can't even give them away. Okay. But at the time, it signified to me accomplishment and something that you could see shiny on your dresser. Okay. And fill up your library. But at the end of the day, who gives a darn? Okay. And when you're able to help other people and you're able to share experiences, we've talked about this, is that being able to mature as a human and add to your wisdom rating, believe it or not, is probably a much greater accomplishment. All right. I like it. You made a speech. I made a speech. And really, you know, as you're very young and you're a fighter and you're cocky, you know, it's it's easy, believe it or not, to not only have your share of wins, but you can get knocked down pretty good too. Okay. So And sometimes you might not get back up. And sometimes you don't get back up. But those that get back up when they are knocked down will be much stronger people in the future. So that's part of it. But also understanding the issues and problems that, that humans go through, that gives you also the art of having compassion for others and wanting to share with others. And this podcast that he does, where he shares with other people the issues and the problems of the world, as well as a road for success and how to lift yourself back up, is a very moving thing that he's doing. And I really appreciate this interview that you had. I love it. But when in doubt, better call daddy. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.